This is an ABC podcast. Hey there, Ange McCormack with you for the Hack Podcast. The trial of Bruce Lerman, who was accused of raping Brittany Higgins, has suddenly ended. And not because there was a verdict, but because a juror was secretly referring to materials they weren't supposed to. In a moment in this episode, we'll find out what this means for this case and how Brittany Higgins responded today. Plus, Australia's Socceroos have made a huge statement just weeks before the World Cup. The team is the first to formally call out the host country, Qatar, for their human rights record. We'll talk about the relationship between sport and activism with former Socceroos player Craig Foster. First, though, to a tragedy in Western Australia. Hack. He just has this beautiful gift of making people smile. On Triple J. His name was Cassius Turvey. By now, you've probably seen his photo on social media. A proud Noongar boy, 15 years old, who was allegedly murdered while walking home from school. For First Nations peoples who experience violence and murder at much higher rates than other Australians, this is a death that feels tragically familiar. It's a death that sparked anger, grief and calls for Australia to properly address the racism that First Nations peoples regularly deal with today. So, who was Cassius Turvey and what happened to him? Hack reporter James Patil is in Perth and has this story. A warning, though, this story contains descriptions of violence and references to someone who has died. It's Thursday afternoon and I'm parked in Middle Swan a suburb on the eastern outskirts of Perth, about 30 minutes from the city. There's playing fields, single-storey blonde brick houses, fibro fences, eucalyptus. There's a jungle gym and kids on kick scooters. It looks like a classic suburban street. And at this time, around 4.30pm just two weeks ago, an Indigenous boy was brutally beaten in broad daylight while in school uniform. Cassius Turvey was rushed to the children's hospital in a critical condition. And just four days ago, ten days after that alleged assault, young Cassius died from his injuries. He was 15. Uh, Vibrant, caring, uh, a jokester with a beautiful smile, loves school. That's Cassius's mum, Noongar Yamaji woman Michelle Turvey, speaking to ABC Radio Perth. Loved his family so much. Loved getting out in the community to youth centres. And he just loved all the young fellows around him. Cassius had recently started a lawn mowing business with his friends. He loved R&B and he had a big dream to be a radio presenter. When he was eight, he was already learning how to put live shows to air. So I'm on the radio learning... When I grow up, I'm going to get a job. So this is what I'm doing this year. On Monday, police charged a 21-year-old man, Jack Stephen James Brearley, with murder. Police allege Cassius and his friends had just gotten off the bus after school when a black ute full of strangers pulled up next to them. The strangers shouted racial slurs at the boys before Mr Brearley jumped out of the car and gave chase. The boys ran away to the nearby TAFE, but Mr Brearley was allegedly able to catch Cassius and he bashed him with a metal pole. The alleged beating was so brutal that scans later revealed Cassius had two brain hemorrhages. 
it may be a case of mistaken identity. It may be a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I, would want, I wouldn't want anyone in the community to jump to any conclusions at this time. We're still very early in the investigation. That's WA Police Commissioner Cole Blanche speaking to Perth Radio Station 6PR yesterday. I think it would be wrong for me to speculate at this time what the reasons were for the murder. We're not operating on any principles of racism or motivation at this point, other than to say we believe there was a damage incident that occurred and that resulted in the murder. Police say racism appears to have nothing to do with Cassius getting beaten up. And this is where the story gets complicated. Cassius's family say the boys were mistakenly targeted in a vigilante attack that the accused thought the boys had smashed his car windows a day earlier and police have confirmed Mr Brearley's car had been recently damaged. The 21-year-old man who has been charged with murder uh, has had damage caused to his car the previous day. If the boys were mistakenly targeted, then racism could have a lot to do with the attack. It could mean that Cassius and his friends were racially profiled and that Cassius was beaten up for being Indigenous. Already, there are comparisons with the death of another Indigenous boy. Six years ago, Elijah Doughty was killed in the WA mining town of Kalgoorlie after being chased by a car that ran him down. When the driver of the car was charged with manslaughter rather than murder, there were violent protests in the main street. Cassius' death has sparked outrage around the country and calls for justice. National rallies are being planned in a show of solidarity and his family have set up a GoFundMe to cover the funeral and legal costs. I don't think you could ever get justice. I'm just heartbroken for my son. 15 years of age. For no reason, I've lost him. That's Michelle Turvey again speaking outside court on Monday. Just for smashing some frigging windows, that he, he would never do that. I'm just appalled at some of the violence going on in, in our communities, whether these young kids are black or white, it doesn't make any difference. We invest so much into trying to instill leadership into our communities. How are we supposed to do it? And people are making our young ones feel like scum and just giving up on them or just going on their appearance. Hack on Triple J. James Fatil reporting there. Let's talk about this story more with Teela Reid. Teela's a Wiradjuri Wailwan woman and a lawyer. Teela, thanks so much for joining me on Hack. Yama and thanks for having me on today. Teela, this is a tragic case. A teenage boy didn't make it home from school alive. It's obviously more than that, though. Cassius was a young, proud Aboriginal boy with his whole life ahead of him, and it's alleged that racial slurs were being shouted during this alleged attack. Why has the death of Cassius Turvey resonated so much around the country? Yeah, look, I'd just like to firstly send my condolences to Cassius um, and his family and that he will always be remembered um, for who he was and the dreams he had as an Aboriginal kid. And I think, you know, it has resonated so much uh, around the country in particular with First Nations communities because this is an Aboriginal kid going off to school, a mum sending her child to school, doing exactly, you know, what she's told to do. And I think we're still living in this fear that our kids are not safe. 
they're not safe, as we know, in cells, certainly, and they're not safe even on the streets of their own country. And so I think, you know, this raises deep fear within our communities. And I guess at what point does this stop across this country? The WA Police Commissioner said Cassius may have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. What did you make of that comment? I think it's absolutely a repugnant comment. Uh, It could have been any child and no child is ever in the wrong place at the wrong time to suffer what Cassius had suffered, you know, in broad daylight. I think, you know, it really goes to a deeper entrenched issue here within the police force that it totally protects the presumption of white innocence and continually sees our people, blackness in particular, our children, as victims and victim blaming. And I think that's deeply concerning because language absolutely matters. I think it's it's absolutely abhorrent um, for the leader of the police force, the commissioner of the police in the WA, to make comments like this, and he absolutely should resign over it. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack and I'm speaking with Teela Reid about the death of Cassius Turvey in WA. Teela, on Monday on Hack, we were talking about the Four Corners investigation into missing and murdered Indigenous women. Days later, we're talking about the alleged murder of an Indigenous child. How do you come to terms with these stories? We were just talking about grief there and there's this sense of perpetual grief in the First Nations community. There's no break between these stories. What effect does that have on you and your community? Well, you're absolutely right, Ange. This is sustained grief. It's traumatic. It's unrelenting. And it's as though we can't wake up a single day in this colony with a bit of relief um, and freedom, uh, freedom from the fear we might be the next, uh, you know, victim of these race hate situations. I mean, that Four Corners story um in my opinion, was groundbreaking, led by Aboriginal journalists, Aboriginal academics speaking to the significant issue about missing and murdered Aboriginal women, over 300. And, you know, it barely made a headline the next day. I think the silence is absolutely violent in this country at every level. And I think it speaks to the normalisation of what we're supposed to endure as First Nations peoples. And I think the difference between the way in which, you know, loss and grief in white communities and loss and grief in Aboriginal communities is very jarring and treated very differently on a national scale. We saw, um, you know, for example, when the Queen died, a white woman who has barely stepped a foot on this col- in this colony, um, you know, the, the entire nation stopped. In 1938, our First Nations ancestors called for a day of mourning. We know now as a nation how easy that is to call, you know, a day of remembrance and a day of mourning at the stroke of a pen. Why are we as First Nations peoples still you know, calling for the bare minimum. And I think it's heartbreaking because we don't get a day off to grieve. It's business as usual when these situations happen in our communities. And I think at the moment there is a real heaviness around particularly in First Nations because we don't get relief from these situations. It shouldn't be normalised. Let's talk briefly about the justice that 
is potentially going to play out in this case. A man has been charged with Cassius Turvey's murder. The family is calling for justice and, and yeah, as I said, we'll see how it plays out before the courts. But as you say, First Nations people are very used to be letting down by the justice system. Is there a sense of anxiety, uneasiness here about what could happen now with the memories of things like the the case of Elijah Doughty um, and, and what happened in, in that trial fresh in the community's mind? I think there's always a sense of anxiety when um, First Nations communities are put through uh, these systems because what we know is that they don't necessarily always bring justice and healing for our people. And there is always the risk that expectations leading into it do not match the reality of the traumatic situations. Um, for example, uh, you know, um, the the alleged uh, accused being found not guilty. I think what we need to, uh, I guess, do better as a country is to make sure that Perhaps we need to start rethinking our systems. Perhaps we need to start better at a community level um, in terms of being able to uh, hold those accountable because these are systems built on white, white patriarchal values and what it's proven is it will continue to uphold those white patriarchal values. What I just want to say as well, you know, Ange, is that um, even outside of these processes, um, Cassius's mother has uh, been so gracious um, throughout what she has endured uh, most recently. And I think we all need to stand in solidarity with her and their family and not let his name be erased in vain Um, because I think justice can mean many things. But standing in solidarity with his family and community is really crucial right now. And there is vigils being held across the country next week on the um, 2nd of November. And I think it's really important people physically show up, physical bodies on the line, showing up in solidarity with Cassius and the many others who have not seen justice on this continent is absolutely crucial. Taylor Reid, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts today on this yeah, really tragic case. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Edge. Hack on Triple J. On the Triple J text line, Annalise from Guliari, you say so right, silence does equal violence. Hack. This is how we can ensure a legacy that goes well beyond the final whistle of the 2022 FIFA World Cup. On Triple J. We're just a few weeks away from the world's biggest sporting event, the World Cup. It's very exciting stuff, but it hasn't been without its controversies. The Cup's host country, Qatar, has come under fire for serious human rights abuses centred around migrant workers employed to build stadiums and the safety of LGBTQI people. Because in Qatar, same-sex relationships are illegal. They can spark jail time. The maximum sentence is the death penalty. Today, Australia's team, the Socceroos, have become the first FIFA World Cup side to release a collective statement against Qatar's human rights record. They put out this video calling on Qatar to decriminalise gay relationships. Here's what it sounded like. There are universal values that should define football. Values such as respect, dignity, trust and courage. When we represent our nation, we aspire to embody these values. We have learned that the decision to host the World Cup in Qatar 
has resulted in the suffering and in the harm of countless of our fellow workers. These migrant workers who have suffered are not just numbers. Like the migrants that have shaped our country and our football, they possess the same courage and determination to build a better life. This must include establishing a migrant resource centre, effective remedy for those who have been denied their rights, and the decriminalisation of all same-sex relationships. These are the basic rights that should be afforded to all and will ensure continued progress in Qatar. Yeah, let's talk more about this with former Socceroo player, football commentator and human rights advocate Craig Foster. Craig, thanks for speaking with me today on Hack. No, it's a pleasure, yeah. It's a really good day to be speaking about sport, activism and human rights. Yeah, heaps heaps of issues to get into. Craig, what do you think about this move, first of all, by the Socceroos, this video that they've put out? Does this send a strong message to FIFA and the football world more broadly? Well, the reason it's so significant is because it sends the strongest possible message. And I can't overestimate how rare that is in sport. Um, You know, we see from sport governing bodies every day, and we've had some of these issues in Australia recently across uh, netball and cricket and other sports, where sport finds itself very challenged to hold the harm that itself creates, uh, to hold itself accountable. Uh, fans, athletes, and the and the commercial pressures that sponsors bring to sport, and we saw this particularly with Gina Reinhardt, for example, puts athletes in a position where they're often at great risk in speaking out, very often reluctant to do so, and therefore are really silenced. Not that they're silent, but they're silenced, and that's the important thing here. And there's been a very concerted campaign in the last couple of years around the FIFA World Cup to right around the world by federations and others, including FIFA and sponsors, and the Qatari Supreme Committee to try and limit the voice and the advocacy of all of the players who are going to arrive there. Qatar knew that these issues were going to be raised, but what they really wanted to do, and FIFA in concert, wanted to limit the way they do it. What The beauty of what the Socceroos have done today is that it's so authentic. They've made two incredibly strong and appropriate calls to action, which no other national team has in the world. And that's important. It shows that they understand human rights, they understand the FIFA human rights policy and that they're strong enough to be able to do so. They are for remedy for the affected workers. There's over 6,500 people who've perished in building the infrastructure for the World Cup in the extreme heat. And secondly, they've called, importantly, for the decriminalisation of the LGBTI community in Qatar. Now, what other athletes and other players and captains in Europe and others are, are typically doing and this is what we see across all sport usually, is they, they, they're saying they're going to go there and make a statement for a one love campaign or everyone is together campaign or, you know, um, no discrimination campaign. This is very different. This is direct solidarity with affected groups. Uh, they've modelled today the Socceroos exactly how sport should operate. And once again, they've demonstrated that it is athletes here and all around the world who are setting a new standard for the way sport should conduct itself and it can't have come quick enough. Do you think it'll be an effective action? Will we see any mm. changes maybe in Qatar? You know, that's to be assessed, I guess, in future. However, it certainly has made a very strong statement. In terms of impact, I would imagine, and I spoke to a, a range of people and organisations in the LGBTI community in and around Qatar, it does give them a platform, it does give them a voice to speak. That's most important. So it is lifting up affected groups. That's the first thing that the Socceroos have to do, is not just to make broad, sweeping statements, if you like, that helps their own brand, and so they're seen to be superficially doing something. What they've done here is they've actually stood, you know, directly with these groups and provided an opportunity for them 
to be able to advocate for change. The problem for sport is it just doesn't want to do it enough. And the Socceroos are stepping forward and saying, we expect more. That's incredibly powerful. Qatar's been scrutinised for their record on human rights, as we've been saying, for the better part of a decade or longer since they were awarded the cup. Can you give us a bit more detail on some of those issues that have been raised? We've, we've talked briefly about the LGBTQI safety concerns, but, but what else has come up? Well, the migrant workers are the big one, and this is where they're talking about remedy here. So in 2010, when Qatar was ordered the World Cup, you know, there's only 300,000 Qataris. And so the country relies predominantly on a migrant workforce of largely workers from impoverished countries who have to borrow money predominantly to pay exorbitant fees in order to get a job in Qatar. Then when they went to Qatar, they had to hand over their passport. That was called the kafala. A legal system and therefore they were serfs. It essentially was modern slavery. And so during a period of about 10 years or so prior to some reform being implemented due to the pressure placed on Qatar, uh, there were many thousands of people who perished. They had no protections. There was very significant wage theft. Uh, there was overworking. There was working in inhumane conditions and all of these issues. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack speaking with Craig Foster. Craig, this is um, another example of activism and sport mixing. There's a long history of that. And as you mentioned before, even, you know, this week we've been talking about the story with Australian netballers and Gina Reinhart's mining company. But not everyone feels like activism and sport belong. Some people Mm -hmm. think sport should just be sport. What, What do you say to that argument? Well, sport is played by humans and therefore humans have a right to be human. So if people are, want to speak out on human rights, doesn't matter if they work for Triple J or they're broadcasters or whatever field they're in, we all have not just a right to do so, but actually a duty. Let's bring it back to the World Cup. You're actually commentating on the World Cup. Yep. Um, talk to me about that decision for you. I understand you thought about boycotting yep. the event. Um, why didn't you? What was the calculation mm. there? Yeah, so boycotting is you know a great choice, a legitimate choice for anyone. Uh, to me, in the end, it's about impact because I am a human rights advocate and I am very interested in pushing sport to do more in this space. I want to see FIFA live up to its human rights policy. I want to see the LGBTI community decriminalised in Qatar. Therefore, my decision is that the World Cup is a wonderful opportunity to speak about these things and therefore by boycotting and being on the periphery, I wouldn't necessarily have opportunity to do so. I think also Australia needs to talk about these things and because of what's happened with uh, cricket and netball recently, you know, it's very much at the forefront of Australia's mind. So the month of the World Cup, which is a very lengthy time, gives me an opportunity to speak to 15 or 20 million Australians. The other issue is that football is incredibly important in Australia. And so like the players, I think it's a legitimate decision to say, well, just because FIFA's made these decisions, that doesn't mean they should take the game away from Australia or away from the players or away from the fans. Some fans might say they boycott it. I say, no, watch it, but speak out and hold them accountable. It's actually during the World Cup when the world is watching this tournament and that's when these messages can be amplified. But in doing so, in, in deciding to broadcast it for those reasons, uh, I, I also then decided that I, it wasn't appropriate to profit from it because I disagree with so much of it. Therefore, I'm doing it for free and I'm donating my full fee for the month to the families of the deceased migrant workers. Craig, we look forward to the World Cup, watching the, the matches and seeing your commentary mm. on them. Um, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Hack on Triple J. That's Craig Foster there. All right, let's head to Canberra.
hack. Obviously, everyone's disappointed by what's happened, but it would be inappropriate and irresponsible to say anything at this stage. On Triple J. The trial of Bruce Lerman, the man accused of raping Brittany Higgins in Parliament House, dramatically ended today. This trial has been going on for the past few weeks and the jury had been deliberating on a verdict. But today, the judge discharged the jury after a juror admitted to accessing information that wasn't presented as evidence in court. Brittany Higgins spoke outside court today. Here's some of her statement. I told the truth, no matter how uncomfortable or unflattering to the court. When I did speak up, I never fully understood our asymmetrical criminal justice system but I do now. It's important to note that the case is still being considered before the courts, of course, and Bruce Lerman denies the charges and has pled not guilty. So what was the juror looking at? How did this happen and what's next for this case? Marcus Mannheim is an ABC reporter in Canberra and has been covering this trial. Marcus, what happened? Why did the judge discharge the jury today? This was this was really unexpected today. I think many mm. people are still shocked. Certainly everyone was shocked this morning in the courtroom. But basically, at least one of the 12 jurors engaged in misconduct. Now, we don't know exactly when the juror did this, but, but that one juror, at least, brought into the closed jury room, a sacred space, you know, just for the jurors, um, a research paper. And that paper hadn't been presented as evidence in the trial, which is a huge no-no. So... Um, Jurors can only use court evidence, basically, when mm. they're deliberating on whether someone's guilty or not guilty. They mm. can't collect material from the internet or social media or legal databases or whatever. They need to reach their verdict using only um, the information that the court presented to them, but also um, their own life experience, of course, too. That's, that's also valid. Yeah, and how did the judge find out about this material, this research paper? Um, essentially, it was by a fluke. And so this might not, we might never have found out about this, but mm. yesterday afternoon, there were three sheriff's officers. They're, they're essentially the staff of the court. Um, they were tidying up the jury room uh, after the jurors went home for the day. And each juror has a, a clear plastic box in which they can put the, the case evidence, the documents and transcripts from the trial and so on. And that's just so if they can go over it and refer to it when they're deliberating. But a sheriff's officer knocked one of the boxes off a chair onto the floor and when he picked it up, he saw um, a paper at the top of that pile in the box that made him suspicious because he read the title of the paper and he thought, this doesn't belong. Wow. And, and he reported so what he saw to the Chief, this Chief was, Justice. Yeah, pu- as you say, purely a fluke that this just fell off the chair kind of into his lap, basically. It's, yeah, that's uh, it's it's quite stunning that in that this might non might ever have realised that this had happened, except I guess for the except for the jurors who never talk about their experience. Yeah, and had the jurors been warned that looking at this kind of material is, as you say, a big no no? Um, well, they they hadn't only been warned; they had been warned every day of the trial, and um, sometimes more than once a day. And um, the Chief Justice, she put it pretty simply to them: she said, "You must not try to undertake your own research." Uh, these were her exact words, which she repeated many times. If you're learning something about this trial and I'm not there, then you should not be doing it. Mm. Now, um, I should just mention what that paper was. It was a research paper. Um, specific. I don't have a copy of it, but none of us do. But it was a published academic paper about fake rape allegations. So specifically, um, the paper was a, it was a commentary on previous research 
of whether it's possible to quantify how often fake rape allegations are made. And it was putting the view that it's unhelpful to try to measure that. And the judge said that's relevant enough to the evidence in this trial that she just can't allow it. It's a breach of the, of the Juries Act. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack speaking with ABC reporter Marcus Mannheim about what's happened in this trial of Bruce Lerman today, the man accused of raping Brittany Higgins, a really stunning development in the, in that the trial has ended dramatically because of this juror misconduct. Marcus, uh, where, where can we expect um, this trial to go from now on? Is there going to be a retrial? What's the future of this case? Um, yeah, that's, that's it. Yes, we will have a retrial, essentially. We already have a date. It's it's four months away in February next year. Um, so the trial will start from scratch. We'll, we'll have a new jury and we'll hear all the evidence again. Um, and you've already made this point, Ange, but it's, it is worth making again. This is an ongoing legal case. It's not finished. So everyone, um, that's the media, but also the public, they have to take care not to prejudice the next trial which is in four months' time. And that's a point that the Chief must sorry, the Chief Justice, um, Lucy McCallum, she made this today. She she said um, she understands the high level of interest in this case, but that she says but she said that after the events of this trial are reported she would love silence leading mm. up to the next one. All right. Well, th- yeah, there is plenty to, to follow and keep an eye on in this case. Marcus Mannheim, thanks so much for getting us up to speed on this one. Thanks, Anne. Hack. On Triple J. That was ABC reporter Marcus Mannheim there. That's all we've got time for today. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode of The Shake Up.